Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear now God's holy word beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. As we continue our consideration of that last clause in verse 2, and in order to do so, let's refresh our memory of the first two verses. Paul begins Romans 5 by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so he's established in the previous chapters the reality of justification by faith alone for the believer that we're made right with God by Christ's perfect sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins, as a redemption price. He's taken away God's wrath. He's obtained God's favor on our behalf. And we receive these things merely by believing the promise of God concerning them. Even our faith itself, as we know from the apostles' writings elsewhere, is a gift. And Our faith itself is not our righteousness, but the means by which we grab hold with the empty hand of faith, grab hold of and embrace what Christ has done on our behalf. That's how we're made right with God. And having been redeemed, 
Christ having accomplished the work of redemption, which means this purchase price, this payment, He has purchased for us not merely that righteousness in God's sight, but flowing out of that, there are all these other benefits that flow from and accompany that benefit of justification. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, this favorable relationship with God, and we have access to it. Verse 2, even as we continue trusting in the promises of God, we're assured by faith that God has a gracious disposition towards us, a favorable disposition into this grace we have this access to know that in the presence of God, we can stand with confidence because of what Christ has done. When we sin, though we ought not to sin, but when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so, in a sense, standing with Christ, next to Christ, in the presence of God, we can have this boldness and confidence that we're accepted and that God has a gracious disposition towards us, and out of that flows all the many things He's promised to give us, and thereby we're confident in those things as well. Another aspect of of this uh, line of argumentation here is that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we've said that chapter 5 marks a transition from the first four chapters which deal with faith, justification by faith, uh, the need for faith itself, to receive the righteousness of God, and so he gets into the reality of sin and misery and judgment, and then justification by faith in Christ. And now he's transitioning in chapter 5 to look forward to the things that God has promised to do in the lives of his believing people, in the lives of those who have faith, of those who have been justified. And so there's an emphasis here in this transition toward hope, And through chapters uh, 5 on to the end of chapter 11, there's an emphasis on what God will do. And we saw that. We won't repeat all of that. But, But you see he's introducing hope, which is characteristic of his entire thought through the first 11 verses that we read of this chapter. Hope of the glory of God. How is it that we can boast and rejoice even in our darkest hour, even in times of tribulation? It's because of this hope, this confident, eager expectation of what God will do. He's promised to do it. He's going to do it. Whether it's on an individual level, He's going to sanctify me. Sin shall not have dominion over me. I'm not under law, under grace. God shall sanctify me. God shall glorify me and raise me from the dead at the last day. Or it's corporate. Chapters 9-11. through God will save His elect believing people corporately. God will save His elect from all nations. He'll gather the fullness of the Gentiles. He'll he'll graft back in the fullness of the Jews and all Israel shall be saved. And so you, you have all of this hope and expectation leading through history into eternity when this hope of glory comes to full fruition and consummation. And so verse 2 is really including all of that, but focusing our attention upon the grand climax, the the consummation of all that we're hoping for at the last day, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Last time we looked at a number of cross-references to demonstrate that in fact 
that reference to the hope of glory and the hope of the glory of God is a reference to the world to come. It's a reference to the eternal weight of glory. Uh, This is the type of language that Paul uses, uh, for instance, in Romans 2, verse 7 and verse 10, Romans 8, verse 18, Romans 9, verse 23. Uh, And what's especially helpful here is Romans 8, verse 30, where he says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So everyone who is justified, having been justified by faith, okay, everyone who's justified shall be glorified. And so it's, it's exactly the same thing he's saying in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. We've been justified, and we're rejoicing in the fact that we shall be glorified. It's the hope of the glory of God that will be manifested in us and reflected upon us at the last day and for all eternity. Last time we considered at least one aspect of this glory that is to come, the glorious hope of Christianity, and that was the glorious appearing. We saw that Paul everywhere is drawing our attention in his epistles to the glorious appearing of Christ and the glorious appearing of Christ's bride who will be presented without a fault, without blemish or spot or wrinkle. And so this glorious appearing of Christ and his bride at the last day is something that the true Christian loves. Paul speaks of those who are saved, those who experience all the blessedness of heaven. He describes them elsewhere as those who love the Lord's appearing. They love His appearing. They're looking forward to His appearing. They're looking forward to being there with Him at His appearing so that they themselves can appear with Him in glory. Colossians 3. But this glorious appearing is not the only aspect of Christianity's glorious hope. There's far more that's involved than simply the second coming of Christ with His bride, the church. This glorious hope of Christianity, this hope of the glory of God that we're rejoicing in even now, also includes a glorious body. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, when He manifests Himself in in the glory of His Father and of the angels and His own glory, sits on the throne of glory, He will have raised from the dead all mankind. And in particular, He will raise up his own believing people with a glorious body. This is part of what we confess when we confess our hope in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, in the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It's not just everlasting life as a disembodied spirit or soul in heaven. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that it is the case that Those who are absent from the body, those believers that are absent from the body, are present with the Lord, and therefore they're called the spirits of just men made perfect. So there are believers, disembodied though they be, that are around the throne in heaven, that are in God's presence, in the presence of Christ in heaven, and those souls, those spirits of just men made perfect, are consciously worshiping and adoring and enjoying God in the person of Jesus Christ even now. In fact, they're 
in the presence of the angels in heaven. And so when a sinner comes to repentance, Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, a sinner comes to repentance, there's joy in the presence of the angels in heaven. It doesn't say the angels, it says those in the presence of the angels, which would of course include God, and no doubt the angels who are longing to look into the things of redemption. Uh, but the, the most, you know, if we're going to think of the most direct reference there in light of Hebrews 12 that in the presence of the innumerable company of angels, there is the spirits of just men made perfect. And so uh, they're consciously worshiping right now. According to the book of Revelation, they're saying, how long, O Lord? They're conscious of time. They're conscious of history. Uh, they're, They're not taken out of that historical timeline because they're actually now in the headquarters of history where the king of kings is ruling and governing his kingdom and conquering his enemies. And so they're perhaps more knowledgeable and more conscious of history than ever before because now they're in the headquarters of the governor of all the nations. But they're disembodied. Their body is resting in the grave. And as our catechism says, their body is still united to Christ. We know this because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're told that our bodies have been bought with a price. Not just our souls, but our bodies are united to Christ. They've been bought with a price. And Christianity's glorious hope is not something that dispenses with the body, but something that recognizes the importance of the human body. That God has in fact created man not only as a soul reflecting his image, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, but that soul has been united to a body. And God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of the first man, Adam, and he became a living being. And you can see from beginning to end in Scripture an emphasis on the importance of the body. Now, this is not to say the primary importance of the body. This is not to say the body is of supreme importance. In fact, if we had to choose between the two, uh, we, would, we would affirm with virtually anyone who has any merit in the history of Christian theology and say that the, 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 the soul is uh, of a higher priority than the body in this sense, that as goes the soul, so goes the body, right? The condition of your soul when you die determines what, what your body is going to be at the last day either raised up in a body prepared for suffering and judgment or raised up in the glorious body that we're speaking about this morning. And so the condition of your soul, I mean, what would, good would it do you? What profit is it to gain the whole world and have all of these bodily comforts and have all of this bodily health and strength and these things that everybody wants, but to lose your own soul? So we would prioritize the soul And yet, in prioritizing the soul, it's of great value to the body. Your body is in its best possible scenario when you prioritize your soul. And so, soul and body work together hand in hand. Or you could say, uh, like a hand in a glove. Because the, the body is God's ordained instrument of the human soul to accomplish things according to the image of God. Uh, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So both body and soul are important, and because we value the soul, we therefore have a a, a very high value upon the body as well. And and this is the Christian hope. It incorporates this emphasis on the body. Now, there's a really insightful 
quotation that I want to read you from Stephen Charnock, one of the great Puritans who wrote much concerning theology proper, concerning the existence and attributes of God, and has spilled much ink concerning those topics. But in his section on the goodness of God, as he's describing the way in which God manifests his goodness in this world, specifically to human beings, he has this to say in connecting the the twofold nature of man, body and soul, with really the twofold structure of the universe in which God showcases his goodness and his blessing to his creatures. Let me read this and then just make a comment. Sharnock says, quote, As to the life of man in this world, God, by an immense goodness, copied out in him the whole creation and made him an abridgment or a summary of the higher and lower world, a little world in a greater one, the link of the two worlds of heaven and earth as the spiritual and corporeal, that is bodily or material, natures are united in him, the earth in the dust of his body and the heavens in the crystal of his soul. He hath the upper springs of the life of angels in his reason and the nether springs of the life of animals in his sense. That, that's a Spurgeonutical reference to uh, the request that was made by, what was it, uh, Caleb's daughter in asking for the upper and the lower springs. Anyway, but you see the point. He goes on. All the perfections scattered in other creatures do unitedly meet in man so that Philo, he's an unbelieving Jewish philosopher, but uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So he says, so that Philo might well call him, that is man, the model of the whole creation. His soul is heaven and his body is earth, end quote. So the, the point that Charnock is making here is that God manifests his goodness to his creation in spiritual ways, which are received by the angels, for instance, the good angels. They receive God's goodness according to their exclusively spiritual nature. Uh, the angels are not, uh, we shouldn't say that they're equivalent to the human soul, but it's similar. They're almost like, in some way, like a disembodied uh, spirit, but they never had a body. They were designed to not have a body, but they're only a spirit. They're ministering spirits. They don't have bodies. They may appear at times in various forms, but, but they're spirits. They're purely spirit, and so they receive the goodness of God according to that strictly spiritual nature. And then you think of the animals, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. They have physical bodies and they receive the goodness of God, his provision and his, his uh, goodness according to this physical, material, bodily nature in terms of the food and drink. And he gives food to all that live, Psalm 145. He preserves man and beast, Psalm 36. But with man, you have this summary, this abridgment of all that God has made. He's made spiritual, he's made physical, but man is both. Man is both. And perhaps this is the reason why man takes center stage, though we could say, what is man that God is mindful of him? But in the plan of God, this is perhaps why man takes center stage. Not the animals, not the angels, but man, because he is a, a, an abridgment 
of all that God has made, of heaven and earth, of spirit and body, immaterial and material. And so man is able to receive God's good gifts both spiritually and physically. And when God made man and put him in the garden and and made woman and brought them together and said, this is very good, at that point, God gave them both spiritual and physical blessings. And so at that point in Genesis 2, you can see that God walks with them. Really, Genesis 3 brings that out even more. But God is there. He unites them in marriage. God is fellowshipping and communing with his creatures, with Adam and Eve. And so there are spiritual blessings and a spiritual enjoyment that they have. But in addition, God made the trees of the garden to be good for food. And so God made man with a material nature, which is actually something that would enhance his relationship to God, not something that is inherently in competition with it or at odds with it. Genesis 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So he's both body and soul. He has both spiritual blessings, but also physical. Verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight. God gave man eyes, and he gave him pleasant things to look at such that it would not be a competition as though, well, stop looking at the trees, Eve, or stop looking, you're looking at those uh, beautiful animals, Adam. Uh, Look at God, look to him. No, 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 these things are not in competition. Man is both spirit and body, and God enhances both through things that are pleasant to the eyes in this physical world. These trees were good for food. God designed us to eat things and enjoy the taste, not as a competition, Right? We're not Gnostics, ascetics, people that say, well, we should eat bad-tasting food so we can be more spiritual. That's not biblical. God made man in both of these ways to enjoy his goodness in both of these ways in a way that transcends anything that we see among any of the other creatures. And only a God of infinite wisdom and goodness could, could arrange something like this. It's just beautiful to even contemplate and to meditate upon And so God, of course, tested Adam and Eve to see if their commitment to him transcended their desire for these physical pleasures. And, of course, they failed because they had, as our confessional standards speak, they had an immoderate desire. They had an inordinate affection for those physical things, and they prioritized them over their spiritual communion with God They made an idol of them, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so this competition between the flesh and the spirit, between the physical and the spiritual, this entered into the equation. But it's not so in principle. Uh, As long as our desires are not inordinate or immoderate, they're not a problem. They actually help our spiritual life when we think of the physical and the spiritual. So this is all very important because the the body, if we take a negative view of all that is physical, then the body is at best a necessary evil. It's the prison house of the soul and we need to be liberated. And so when we think of the glory of God in the world to come, if we're taking this negative view of apple pie 
and of a beautiful sunset. If we're taking a negative view of physicality and physical pleasure, then we're saying, well, get this thing out of here so that we can move on to the spiritual. But that's just not how God created man, nor is that the picture of Christianity's glorious hope. Now, of course, our Reformed forefathers did speak, Calvin especially, of our bodies as a prison house for the soul. And the reason that Calvin said that, and he was exactly right, and we, we can speak that way, is he was thinking of the body in its current condition of sin and misery, not the body because it's a body, but the body because it's filled with sin and, and misery and, and death and, and needs to be remade. So he's not saying the body in principle because it's a physical body, because it's material is a prison house, and that the soul needs to be set free and disembodied as for its greatest good. No, he's saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's desiring a new body. And and in that sense, uh, even our death does free us from this house of clay of sickness and death and decay and uh, carnal lust and sin and all these things in our current state. Yes, when we're disembodied, we're made perfect in holiness, and so that's a beautiful thing. We do look forward to that, but as we'll see in a moment, that's not the ultimate end. That's why the saints in heaven in the book of Revelation are still asking, how long, how long, when's this thing, you know, they're, they're not, they haven't reached the pinnacle. Uh, they want a new body, a glorious body. That is their glorious hope, and that is our glorious hope. Now look with me at... 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. The end of chapter 4, Paul's dealing with Christians overcoming outward affliction by looking to that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, That's 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. And... uh, He speaks of looking at spiritual things, not temporary outward things. But then he comes to chapter 5, verse 1, and he says this in expounding this eternal weight of glory that we're to be looking for and anticipating. He says, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what he's saying is that our earthly bodies are a tent or a tabernacle. You think of the contrast between the wilderness when God's people worship God at a tabernacle, and actually for a number of generations after that, even in the land of Canaan, they worshiped God at a tabernacle, a tent that you could take up and tear down, It was a temporary thing. And then Solomon built the temple of the Lord. And so the idea here is that uh, the body is the house, the habitation of the soul. And this earthly body in a world of sin and fallenness is a temporary tent or tabernacle that will be destroyed. And if, and, and we could almost say when here, when it's destroyed, we have a building from God. Now, there's debate here. Some people think, well, this is talking about the resurrection of the dead, our resurrection bodies, and there are people that make that case, some very smart 
Orthodox people make that case. Um, but I think if, if you're interested in a good commentary on this, read Charles Hodge. He really deals with this in a helpful way to say that the building from God is not the new body because we don't have that now, right? At the moment of your death, when your earthly tabernacle is destroyed, you wouldn't be able to say at that moment, I have a building from God. No, that old body is a seed that's going to eventually be raised up as a new body. But you don't have your new body at the moment of your death. But this is saying we, present tense, have a building from God. In other words, it's there, we have it, and we're awaiting it. At the moment of our death, we're going to enter it. And so when he says we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, this is language that is speaking to us of the temple in heaven, heaven itself. When we are disembodied at our death, we will not be aimlessly roaming around like you see, unfortunately, this time of year in some of these ridiculous uh, horror-type entertainment, things like that. We're not going to be roaming around and floating around. We have a home. We'll be absent from the body, present with the Lord, and we have a house. Uh, As one preacher said one time, I've used this illustration before, but if you're in a tent out in the backyard and all of a sudden, you know, with your kids perhaps, and all of a sudden... Uh, it starts raining, and the winds are blowing. Uh, you can just go into the house. And so when our earthly bodies are wavering and wilting away, and, and we see this in our loved ones as they age oftentimes, or as cancer has its ravaging effects upon them, you can see the, this tabernacle, and it's the, the stakes are pulling up, and it's starting to tear, and it's, and it's about to blow away. But you see, when it's destroyed, you just go into the house. We have a house. And we, can, we, ha- we have, as it were, warm clothing, and uh, you, can, you can take a, a hot shower and, and be comfortable inside the house. When we die, dear believer, we have a house, a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. He says, for in this we groan, in this earthly tabernacle, he says, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. In other words, our heavenly habitation. So at the moment of death, you'd say, well, I'm I'm totally naked because my body's gone. I'm just a soul. What does that mean? What's going on here? What's going to happen to me? It's incomprehensible what it would be like to, to be consciously outside of your body, just as a disembodied spirit. He says, we groan to be set free from this earthly fallen body, but we don't want to be completely naked. If indeed, verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So what he's saying is the initial clothing that we receive for our soul is heaven itself, our heavenly habitation. Absent from the body, present with the Lord our disembodied spirit will be surrounded by the angels. You know, there will be some people with bodies in heaven. You've got uh, Enoch, Elijah, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one saint before the flood, one after, and then uh, Christ himself. And and so God has always had a testimony to the disembodied spirits in heaven. Uh, throughout every major phase of history, there's always a testimony that your body's coming because there's someone in every phase that he extraordinarily 
uh, brings to heaven with their body and, and showcases that glory. Enoch, Elijah, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps even some of the saints who were raised with Christ, according to Matthew, that's a debate. But the point is that we're not entirely naked, verse 3, because we're in heaven, the house made without hands eternal in the heavens. But that's not the full clothing. And that's what Paul is, you see the trajectory here from what we call the intermediate state of being a, a spirit of just men made perfect in heaven, that intermediate state is leading somewhere. That's not the full clothing. Your heavenly habitation is not the full clothing. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, not because we're looking forward to death so we can get rid of this prison house for the soul and be forever disembodied and be forever unclothed, but further clothed. So your heavenly habitation provides the context, the, the home, the environment, the hospitable environment for your soul between your death and the second coming. But there's this further clothing. The intermediate state is not the full deal. There's a further clothing. We desire that we would be freed from our bodies so that eventually we can receive further clothing that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, mortality is in reference to the body, not the soul. The soul is not mortal in the sense that it's going to ever be annihilated or something like that. So now he's speaking of the raising up of the resurrection body. Uh, we want to be not unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And he says we have the Spirit as a guarantee of this. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise up our mortal bodies and give life to our mortal bodies. Romans chapter 8, although there's a debate there as to whether that's sanctification or the resurrection, but the concept is there. The Spirit gives resurrection life in our sanctification as a foretaste, as a guarantee that he will raise up our physical bodies at the last day, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 6, so we're always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Though being disembodied is unnatural and perhaps scary for us as we anticipate it at this moment, Paul says, walking by faith, not by sight, uh, we trust that if God has ordained this for us, that it's good. We have not seen or experienced the intermediate state. This is the whole point of not by faith, or not by sight, but by faith. That's his whole point. Believers haven't seen or experienced the intermediate state in heaven. How do we know it's going to be a hospitable home? How do we know that it's going to be far greater to be absent from the body and present with the Lord? We've never seen what that's like. We've never experienced it. We don't know what it is. We've never been absent from the body. But he says, God says he's going to do this, and God is good and gracious. We can trust that he who promised is faithful. And so, though eye hath not seen nor ear heard in some sense, we can anticipate it with joy, knowing that God has prepared these things for us. Uh, we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now, 
once we get to that point, we'll also be desiring the resurrection to come. But we're anticipating with glee, with joy, doesn't mean we don't mourn and sorrow over death and things like this, but, but fundamentally we rejoice in that doorway to glory that is our own death. We're confident and we would prefer, uh, we see that to die is gain, as Paul says elsewhere. Uh, so understand, believers desire, by the Spirit's prompting, desire a new body, a glorious body to fully and further clothe us. And th- this is something that Paul emphasizes in, in contrast to various false teachings in his own day. First Timothy chapter 4. This is a chapter that in many ways relates to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. These are parts of the scriptures that ought to be understood and preached side by side and ought to be done, that ought to happen in a way that draws them together and not drives them apart. These are crucial passages. We're told 1 Timothy 4 that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So the, the Holy Spirit is prophesying that from the perspective of the apostles, there's coming a movement of apostasy and false teaching at the instigation of the devil that is going to promote these deceptive doctrines of devils. Now listen, verse 3, here's what they're going to say, one of the things they're going to say, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There's coming a movement of false doctrine that's going to say that to be truly spiritual, you should avoid sex even within the context of marriage. That's, that's worldly. That's fleshly. Uh, it's better not to marry. Now, Paul says it's better not to marry in a whole context that we don't have time to consider. But overall, he actually frequently exhorts people to get married and speaks very highly of marriage. Uh, but not so this apostate religious movement Uh, Many have identified it as the Roman Catholic Church, and we don't have time to prove it, so I won't make that claim right now, but but they're probably right. But the point is, forbidding to marry. You see this among Rome, you see it among other groups, viewing marriage as an evil thing, sex as inherently fleshly and carnal, or at the very least, spiritually inferior. So if you're real spiritual, then you rise above that and remain single. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, um, a a negative view of food, that enjoying food is is a rung down the ladder spiritually. And again, you see this with Rome, with the the various uh, fasts and Lent, and, um, you know, again, forbidding priests to marry. These kinds of things creep in. It's the result of Gnosticism, uh, this view that the body is evil, the spirit is good, which arose early in the church and had its influence later in history. This idea of asceticism, which is that 
you know, we, our sanctification grows as we deny our body certain things, even good things that God has given to us. And Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. These are things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he says, as long as you're thankful and grateful for these things, it's a blessing. It increases your thankfulness, which is an important integral part of your relationship with God. So it actually furthers your spiritual life. You enjoy the food, and now you're thankful for the food, and now you're directing your thanksgiving to God within the context of believing and knowing the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. So we shouldn't say, well, I I shouldn't eat the apple pie uh, because it's going to taste good, and now I'm going to lose my focus spiritually. No, as long as you receive it with thanksgiving. That's not to say we should never fast. It's not to say that there aren't times where, for spiritual reasons, we deny ourselves. Of course, deny yourself take up your cross. But the point here is, in principle, uh, enjoying God's good gifts for the person who is consistently believing and knowing the truth will actually increase your relationship to God, not decrease it. It, It's all related to the importance of the body. And he goes on, verse 7, he says it it ought to be sanctified by the word and prayer, verse 5. Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. What's he saying here? Uh, he's and I've been persuaded, I was at a conference a couple months ago where the, the preacher made a strong case and, and I looked up a number of commentaries and I'm, I'm now persuaded verse 8 is not a reference to working out at the gym, okay? He's not saying uh, working out at the gym profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Now that may be true. It may be a faithful saying in some sense. You know, there, we, could, we could go down that road, but that's in context here. Remember, the context is imposing restrictions upon people for spiritual purposes. Outward physical restrictions on their appetites, on food, on sex, on marriage. This sort of bodily exercise, this restraining of bodily appetites to the extreme, this type of approach to religion is of little value. Not it profits a little bit compared to the other thing, but it's of little value. Uh, At the end of Colossians 2, Paul says essentially the same thing. This is of no value for overcoming the flesh. This ascetic Gnostic approach of not uh, enjoying the apple pie. It's not going to help you. It may have an appearance of wisdom in will worship, but it's not from God. It's not a biblical construct. So he's saying this sort of bodily approach to religion, restrain your physical appetites, even not just for sanctification within due boundaries, but we're talking um, abstaining from foods, forbidding to marry, okay? This negative view of physicality and of physical pleasure. This is of small value, of, of, of little value. But godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So he's saying 
Godliness does not mean viewing physicality as negative. In fact, our great and glorious hope is that we will be raised up bodily. That's what we're anticipating, and so it affects the way we view the world today. Yes, we restrain ourselves for the purpose of obeying God, keeping down that inordinate affection and desire. If we turn the apple pie into an idol, by all means, throw it in the garbage. But it's not wrong, he he says, to receive it with thanksgiving and to give thanks for that tasty uh, treat. Now, uh, look with me again, Colossians. I've already alluded to this, but again, if we believe in this glorious body that is to come, how do we approach the body now? Colossians 2, and it's right before Colossians 3 that talks about seeking things above. So, oftentimes, we can quote one or the other, but we need to see these things in tandem. The spirituality of heavenly mindedness that Paul is representing here for believers is balanced. Verse 20 of chapter 2, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. So if somebody says neglecting your body is the most spiritual thing, Paul says that's a doctrine of men. That's not a doctrine of the word of God. We should take good care of our body. That means food, drink, sleep, uh, there are extraordinary times of fasting, and sometimes we, we pray into the night. But, but neglect of the body is not inherently spiritual, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It may seem like it, but Paul says it's not. And then he goes on to say heavenly mindedness. So he's saying heavenly mindedness does not mean this sort of uh, emphasis on the spirit as opposed to the body. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Well, what is Christ doing in heaven? Well, he's physic- he, he has his physical glorified body. He's ruling and reigning. Think about that. Think about your glorified resurrection body to come. Think about Christ inhabiting that body, that sort of body in heaven. Set your mind on those things, not on the fallen physicality on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your glorious resurrection body, physicality. Glorified material bodies. Verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Now he's going to start listing body parts, right? No. Now he doesn't. He lists sins. He lists fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, not because of apple pie, not because of cappuccino, because of fornication. 
uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So, yes, inordinate affection toward the cappuccino or toward the apple pie. Absolutely, that's bringing God's wrath, but not an appropriate level of enjoyment and, gr- and gratitude toward God. Uh, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This is, a, this is not the biblical approach of heavenly-mindedness in the New Testament. Now, um, you could look at Acts 14, verse 17. Paul says that, that God has actually given mankind as a whole, not just believers, but uh, he's given mankind various good things in this life. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So understand the body is good. Physicality was made by God to be very good. And we only need to fight against the undue elevation of bodily desires and bodily pleasure that would constitute covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I realize uh, if the Lord spares us, we'll have more time to get into a lot of these other things. But I want you to notice that the resurrection body that we're anticipating is going to be different. It's not going to be the same body. Uh, as, as much as we've said about apple pie and cappuccino, okay, our new bodies are not going to be geared toward uh, desiring those types of pleasures in that way. Um, and uh, I have a handout that I, I've used before, but I've made it available on our reform.com forward slash handouts page, and there's a couple, several copies on the book table, a handout with quotations that include references where, where reform theologians and commentators are commenting on the, the new resurrection body that we'll have and some of the discontinuities, that we're not going to hunger or thirst, we're not going to need food. Our bodies will not need food and drink. We're not going to necessarily be eating apple pie and drinking cappuccino. Okay, so we'll have a physical body, but it's going to be changed. And it's going to experience the goodness of God in a different way. Uh, We're told in 1 Corinthians 6 that God will destroy the stomach and food, you know, ultimately. And read, read commentators on that verse. Uh, Reformed commentators typically take that to be a reference to the glorified body that is to come. We won't be eating from uh, the the things that grow out of the dust of the earth and so on and so forth. Now, look with me at a couple passages here in closing, and we'll pick this up next time. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, at the very end, verse 20 and 21 In fact, we can start in verse 19. Uh, He says, concerning those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. See, there's the ungodly emphasis on physicality. You're worshiping that apple pie. Uh, If you have the choice and, you know, you could go get the apple pie or you could do your devotions and you only have time to do one or the other. Okay, again, if if your God is your belly, well, then your end is destruction. You're not seeking first the kingdom. Uh, Or you're loving the apple pie, but not giving thanks to God for it. Uh, Not uh, showing love and affection for the giver of the gift. Okay, your end is destruction, Paul says. Whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So he says our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. That's our fundamental identity. That's our homeland. As Hebrews 11 says, that is our heavenly country. The word country there is the word fatherland. It's our fatherland. That is our heavenly country. That is where our fundamental citizenship is, whatever other citizenship we may have. And we will inhabit that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, in a glorified body that is conformed to the glory of Christ in his humanity, in his glorified humanity. Our lowly, earthly, fallen body will be conformed to his glorious body And that's what we need to be anticipating. Not that we're going to spend eternity eating apple pie and drinking cappuccino. Okay, We're going to spend eternity in bodies that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind or heart of man uh, what God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 John 3, 2, he says, It's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He's revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see him as he is. Even Jesus, when he rose from the dead and he's eating fish and he looks like a gardener, you contrast that with after he ascended and was glorified and you see that his glorified body shone brighter than the sun on the road to Damascus. And and you see it in the book of Revelation, John falls to the dirt on the Isle of Patmos. The glorified resurrection body that we shall inherit will be far beyond not only our vile fallen bodies, but it shall be far beyond even what Adam had. And this is a teaser for next Lord's Day when we we get into the, the ins and outs of the resurrection body itself. But I just want to prove this point before we conclude. Uh, Our purpose this morning is to establish that there is a resurrection body. And that physicality, therefore, is a good thing. And we need to use it in a good way. And we need to enjoy it in a God-centered way. Uh, But as we transition to consider what this resurrection body for ourselves will be, we need to understand this is not a return to Eden. And so I'm just going to make this point in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll leave it there and come back next Lord's Day or a couple weeks from now and consider the details that we have concerning this resurrection body itself. But when we talk about the resurrection body, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 and following, be very brief here. He says, it is sown in dishonor, these dust bodies, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Up to this point, you're saying it's our fallen bodies under the curse of sin, and they'll be resurrected. Fair enough. These two references in themselves would not demonstrate that our resurrection glorified body is going to transcend that of Adam and Eve before the fall. But notice he goes on. It is sown a natural body. 
it is raised a spiritual body, not immaterial, but spiritual. We're going to look at that next time when we have a chance. Very important aspect of our hope. But he says it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And how does he define the natural body? Does he define it as after the fall, dust you are and to dust you shall return, thorns and thistles? No, he does not. Verse 45, he says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's before the fall, friends. That is before the fall. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Genesis 2, verse 7. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. God willing, we're going to explore that. What does that mean? Christ is a life-giving spirit. How does that affect how we view our resurrection bodies? I can't wait for that. But he goes on. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth. That's before the fall. Adam was made of the dust before the fall. Made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And then he says this. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, and that's flesh and blood. Adam and Eve, before the fall, had flesh and blood. The first man and woman were living beings, Genesis 2, 7, before the fall, made from the dust, flesh and blood. But he says that flesh and blood body of Adam and Eve before the fall, even that cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So not the corrupt fallen body, but not the Genesis 2-7 body. We shall inherit a body that's been transformed and conformed to the glorious body of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that it's spiritual? We'll consider that next time. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are the God over all flesh. You are the Father of our spirits. You made us from the dust of the ground, and you breathed the breath of life, even our own soul, into our nostrils in our Father Adam. We look forward to the day in which we will not only be free from death and disease and the results of the fall and of the curse, but we look forward to the day when our natural bodies will be transformed and glorified that they might be spiritual bodies, material bodies yet inhabited fully by the Holy Spirit and sustained directly by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our fountain of life, our tree of life, our source of life, whose words are spirit and life, the life-giving spirit of the eternal Son of God, through his incarnate humanity communicating to us all that we need for all eternity in body and soul, even him who is the light thereof. We pray that you would give us a proper perspective on our current bodies, that we would deny them vigorously, that they may not be permitted to enjoy immoderate and inordinate desires and lusts and affections, 
but we pray as well that we would enjoy your good gifts in this world and offer up our thanksgiving to you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. For Jesus' sake, amen.